Good morning. It's good to be together with you all this morning, the house of the Lord. It's a privilege and a blessing um, to be together like this. I'd just like to say from, before I get started here this morning, from our family, thank you for your kindness and your generosity towards us over the Christmas season for all the gifts. Um, it is a blessing to be a part of this congregation, and uh, we feel blessed in many ways. Um, I'm drawing a sermon here from Genesis chapter 3. We'll spend most of our time in this chapter this morning. Uh, I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Consequences of the Fall. The Consequences of the Fall. We see in Genesis 1, we see the uh, creation happens. That's the account of the six-day creation. Genesis 2 gives us some more details about the creation. And then Genesis chapter 3 is where we read of uh, the, the very first sin that entered into the world after creation. And uh, Genesis 3 is, it both gives us a diagnosis and also a prescription all at the same time. Um, the diagnosis is, of course, sin and its consequences, but then he also gives a promise. And there's a message of hope there in Genesis chapter 3 for us today. Uh, today. As we look at the world around us, um, people uh, die. Death is one of the things that came as a result of sin. Um, sickness entered into the world. We have viruses. We have diseases. We have um, cancer. Uh, all kinds of things that entered in because of this account in Genesis chapter 3. There was destruction that happened now. There was uh, tornadoes and other natural disasters. You could have earthquakes, various kinds of natural disasters. All of that happened as a result of this Genesis chapter 3 account. This chapter gives us a full diagnosis of why these things happen and a clear picture of why. Why did it happen? See, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them perfect. There was nothing wrong with his creation. It was perfect. And he created an environment for them and put them in a perfect environment. The environment he created was perfect, and Adam and Eve were created perfect. There was nothing evil in his creation. And they were only experiencing good things in the garden. Their experience, they knew nothing of the experience of evil. Only good. Tremendous, tremendous blessing. Then in Genesis chapter 3, something goes terribly wrong. I have a simple outline for the message this morning. I have the diagnosis and the prescription. So first we'll look at the diagnosis. You cannot know how to get right until you have an understanding of what is wrong or what the problem is. If you go to the doctor, uh, you really want to hope that the doctor will give you an accurate diagnosis of what the problem is. 
so that you can get a proper prescription to um, deal with the diagnosis. Genesis chapter 3 gives us a diagnosis. It also gives us a prescription. A prescription is an instruction written that authorizes a patient to receive medicine or a treatment. And so we have the diagnosis and the prescription. Here in Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced for the very first time to another player in the, Genesis, in the uh, creation account. We had God, and then we had he created man. And now in Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced uh, to Satan, or uh, as he is referred to in scripture, the devil, the father of lies. And Satan comes into the garden, and he, had his, he has a desire to communicate with God's creation and God's jewel of creation, if you will, mankind. So let's look a little bit about Satan and his origin first. Satan was originally Lucifer, was his name, and this word Lucifer actually means good, it means a bright light. And he was with God. Uh, interestingly, Jesus, I did a little bit of cross-referencing here to see what the Bible says about Lucifer. And um, Jesus uh, referred to him in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He says this about Satan. He says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So apparently Jesus was present when Lucifer fell from the presence of God. As he says, I beheld Satan. I saw him fall as lightning from heaven. Jesus was present with God. I believe um, in Ezekiel chapter 28, if you want to turn there, we're going to spend just a little bit of time there and um, looking a little more about who, um, who this um, Lucifer was. Ezekiel gives us some... Uh, description on who he was. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28. <clears throat> In verses 14 through 19. He says here, Thou art the anointed cherub, I'm sorry, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so, Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Uh, this tells us that, Saint, uh, or that uh, Lucifer was present with God. He was in the presence of God. Verse 15. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So then we see iniquity was found in him. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I believe Jesus witnessed this. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. God said, I'm going to destroy you. Thine heart was lifted up. There we see what his problem was. Because of thy beauty, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. 
I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thy iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. So we see that Satan... I'm sorry, I missed an important verse here. Verse 13. This also gives us a little bit of what he looked like. Thou hast been in Eden, in the garden of Eden. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day thou wast created. So we see Lucifer was... What a beautiful angel. And he rebelled against God, and because of that, God cast him out of heaven and, and uh, destined him to destruction. So now, here is Satan on the earth. God has created a beautiful paradise, and he has created mankind and put him in there. And so here he comes, shortly after creation, in the form of a serpent. He indwells a serpent. And he disguises himself as one of God's created creatures. A serpent was already living in the garden. I don't know what it looked like. We know that after the curse, uh, he, needed, he was a snake. Um, before that, I don't know. What did it look like? I don't really know. Either way, it was not a threat to Eve at all. Satan came, and he indwelt the serpent. He came with the intent to involve God's creation in his rebellion. Nothing has changed for him since he was cast out. He comes cunning and crafty. He came with pride. He came with the intent of causing confusion and disorder in God's perfect creation. And he came with a strategy. Very important to see this here in this text. He came with a strategy. He was intentional in how he approached mankind, and we will see that here. Um, we know something of strategies, don't we? In the sports uh, realm, we know that if there's a basketball game or if there's a, if there's a uh, football game, uh, you come with a strategy. You study your opponent. And you say, okay, so this is how we're going to come to the game. These guys are going to be uh, tough on the run game, or these guys are going to—these guys are really good on the on the passing game. So this is our strategy. We're familiar with that. We need strategy when we approach uh, in the in the sports world. I believe it is also equally important for us to be aware of Satan's strategies and to be aware of what. He, how he approaches us. The first thing we see in, in Satan's strategy here is we see his, he has a strategy of confusion. He wants to bring confusion. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 is where we see this. God had given them one command. God had said when he placed man in the garden, he said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. Only of that one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it or you will die. That was the only thing God said. Okay? That was one command. It was a blessing. 
for Adam and Eve. At this point, Adam and Eve only had a knowledge of good. They, had, they didn't know what evil was about or what it was like to experience evil. Their, their environment was good. So here he comes with a question. And he says, yeah, hath God said? That was his question. He, what he's doing is he's approaching Eve and he's, he's working on breaking down her resistance. And he says, hath God said? Then he goes on to misquote God, what God really says. What he, what, he, what he does is he makes God look as if he's some super strict and set a really high standard for them. He says, hath God said? Questioning what God said? Hath God said? Eve never thought about this before. He introduced this idea to Eve. And then he says, you shall now eat of every tree of the garden. Is that what God said? God said you can eat of all the trees of the garden, only that one you should not eat of. So he makes God appear like he's really super strict and he has set a really high standard for them. And so he's breaking down Eve's, in Eve's mind, he's breaking it down, breaking down her resistance. If he can cause enough confusion about what God has said, then he has lowered the threshold of the woman's resistance. And it will become much easier for her to rebel and sin against God. And he knows this. This is why he brought this strategy, the strategy of confusion. Trust me, his strategy is the same today. If he can bring confusion about what God says in his word, his strategy is working. The strategy of confusion. Interestingly, when he comes to Christ in the wilderness, when Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, he used the same strategy, the same approach. He came to him and he said this. He said, if you are the son of God, if you are, he brought into question, are you really the son of God? If you are. You see his strategy? He's, he's hoping he can break Jesus down here. If you are. Well then if you are, prove yourself and make these stones turn into bread. His goal was to get Jesus to doubt or to question in a moment of weakness. Jesus responded by saying, you should not live by bread alone but by the word of God. We know the devil's strategy failed miserably in the garden. But make no mistake, his strategy is still the same today. If he can get us to question what God says in his word, then he is on mission and on target. His second approach to Eve here is uh, after Eve said, yeah, we can eat of all the trees of the garden except that one. And then the serpent uses his second strategy here in verse 4. And I'm going to call this the strategy of presumption or presuming upon the grace of God. The strategy of presumption. 
So he goes on to the woman and he said, and the woman said, you know, if we eat of this fruit, we're going to die. And he says to the woman, no, you're not going to die. God would never do that. The first time around, he said, God is super. He has set a really high standard, tried to do that. And then the next time around, he's, he continues to break down her resistance here. And he says, oh, God would never do that. You shall not surely die. You would die if you would eat that fruit. You can eat all the other stuff. You would not surely die. <clears throat> you see how he uses this strategy of presumption? Surely, surely, a little act of disobedience wouldn't have the consequences of death. Surely it wouldn't be that bad. Surely God wouldn't do such a thing. Surely those consequences, in Eve's mind, she's thinking about this, and she's thinking, surely those consequences, and he's breaking down her resistance here by tempting her to think in this way. Surely God wouldn't, surely those consequences are exaggerated, right? It's, it's over the top. And he gets the man and the woman to presume upon the grace of God. Sure, you shall not surely die. And then the third strategy is a strategy called a strategy of ambition. And interestingly, also in, in his strategy against Jesus, he did the same thing in Matthew chapter 4. When the strategy didn't work to get Christ to question, he said this. He said, well, why don't you go to the highest point in the temple? up to the very pinnacle of the temple. And since you are the Son of God, and since you since you're, can do anything, just go ahead and jump off. You would never hurt yourself because God says in his word that he's going to send angels to protect you. So he, he uses the same strategy in trying to, get, trying to break Jesus down into presuming upon the grace of God, or presuming that God would protect him. The same, same, same thing. And of course, Jesus again resisted him. And we see his strategy is the same for us today, is it not? Go ahead, go ahead and sin. Since God already said he is for you, you can do whatever you want. He loves when we start thinking like that. That's his strategy, the strategy of presumption. Thirdly, then, we see the strategy of ambition. You see this in verse, in verse 5. He says, you shall be as gods. Okay, so he's continuing to break down Eve's resistance here. Every approach he takes is breaking her down a little more every time. <clears throat> he says, God knows that when you eat of this tree, you will be like him. You're going to be little gods. Isn't that what you would like to be, Eve? Little gods? And he's breaking down her resistance. Satan, he knows how much we like that suggestion. We like to be little gods. We like to be in control. We like to determine our own destiny. We can determine what we may or may not do. 
We don't need to have God telling us what we may or may not do. And Satan says, that is exactly what you can do. You could decide your own destiny. You could be your own person. You don't have to have God speaking over this. You don't have to be under God. You can be like little gods and decide for yourself what's right and wrong. Does that sound familiar? He uses the same, the same strategy with Jesus again. His final strategy with Jesus was the same. He says, you know, Jesus, if you would just fall down and worship me, you could become this, this little God. You could just do whatever you want to do. I'll give it all to you. If you just bow down and worship me, that's all you got to do. I'll give you everything I got. Just worship me. I believe we do well to be aware of Satan's strategies. He loves if he can cause confusion, if he can cause us to presume upon the grace of God, and if he can get us ambitious about being our own person, being our own people, doing our own thing. Who needs the church anyway? He loves when we start thinking like that. Be very careful. Very careful when you find in your own mind, you start to find your way around something in the Bible. When you start to question something about what God's word says. Very careful. Be very careful when we think that I can do this, I'll just repent later. I'll just take a little dab at this and then repent later. Very careful. Those are Satan's tactics and his strategies. Be very careful when there is something you really want and you really desire, but it is intention with faithfulness to God. Be very careful. Satan is subtle in his approaches. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this. It says, lest Satan should get an advantage for us. Then he says this, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So we can read God's word and we can see what his approach is and how he will approach us. We are not ignorant of his devices. So we looked at his origin, we looked at his strategy, and now we'll take a look at his goal. What was his goal in coming to the garden? <clears throat> Genesis, his goal to was to come into the garden to introduce man to the knowledge of evil. That was his number one goal of coming in. Their experiences were only good. And his goal was to come in and to introduce them into this knowledge of evil. Let's go back and see what God said about eating from this tree. He says, but, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God had made everything good. The only experience that Adam and Eve had up to this point was good. 
They were surrounded by it. They were in a perfect environment experiencing only good things. Satan knew that. What God was saying when he said, do not eat of this tree, is that there is another terrible reality for you if you eat of this tree. <clears throat> that reality is that if you eat of this tree, you will then also get a knowledge of evil. And God says, I don't want you to experience that, so don't eat from this tree. <clears throat> Satan then, with his cunningness, capitalizes on this and introduces the idea that maybe, maybe Adam and Eve, maybe you're missing out on something. Maybe you're missing out on something. And that God is, is withholding a more complete experience from you. Maybe, just maybe, if you took from this fruit and you ate of it, you would have a more rounded experience or you're, you, would, you would have a more full experience because you're experiencing good. So why not experience evil as well? And he introduces this idea to them. And so we know they took the fruit. I don't plan to get into any of the details with who took and, and all that. But they took the fruit. They ate the fruit immediately. After they had plucked that fruit from the tree, they now experienced evil. Their experience was now both good and evil. They could now, it became immediately, it became bitter in their mouth. Because now their experience was also evil. Now evil became a reality for them. Now they had a knowledge of evil. This virus of, of the knowledge of evil created all kinds of issues for them. Their world immediately changed after they plucked of this fruit and ate. It affected their relationship. We see that in verse 16. It affected their marriage. It affected work. The ground was cursed. Work now became hard. There was now thorns and thistles. Death became a reality. There is now hostility in the natural world that didn't exist prior. The lion became vicious. The wolves became predators. The natural world that Adam and Eve were now in was completely different from what it was just a little bit ago. It changed completely. They were now experiencing evil. Their communion with God changed immediately. They ran from God. They hid from him. They were afraid of him. They were now laden with fear and guilt. God, of course, comes to them, has a conversation. They were driven from the garden. The place where their experience was only good, they are now excluded from that place of blessing and from the presence of God. They walked regularly with God. They were in regular communication with God in a beautiful place, a perfect environment. All of a sudden, it all changed very quickly. Notice, 
They could not find, this is in the very last verse of this chapter, so he drove out the man and he placed the, at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. Notice that they couldn't find their way back to that place of blessing. God put a cherubim there with a flashing sword. Now this flashing sword that was there, this was a sword, this was not some static kind of a, a statue with a sword like this. The picture that is given here is this is a sword that is going this way and that way. And you could not possibly get past it. Rather than just a stoic kind of a sword or a, a picture of somebody just standing there with a sword as you see in maybe the Buckingham Palace where you see these people standing there. No, this was a flashing sword. It was keeping anybody from entering. It was guarding the way to the place of blessing. Which, by the way, this may have been an act of mercy from God because if man would have picked of the tree of life afterwards, he would have had the knowledge of good and evil and would have lived forever in that state. To the woman he said, your desire will be for your husband and in pain will you bring forth children. We know, we can look around us and we see. We see the results of, of sin every day around us. We have disease, we have all these things happening. And this is all happening because of what happened here in the garden. This is what is wrong with the world today. Everything that is broken in the world is a result of what happened in the garden on that day. Sin has its consequences, and that's the diagnosis. Now for the prescription. And we see, you know, we are still, we're still there. We have this sin nature within us, don't we? <clears throat> now for the prescription, though. You know, Hope begins on the day that Adam was expelled from the garden. Hope came through a curse. So we have Adam and Eve and the serpent. And I personally believe there were all three there. And God comes to them and they're having this conversation, right? God is asking, what did you do? And Saint and um, and Eve said, and Adam said, well, the woman gave me and Satan tempted her or the serpent tempted her and on and on the story. You're familiar with the story. God deals with this issue of evil head on. He immediately confronts evil and he looks at the serpent and he says, cursed are you. You are cursed. Wow, that how does a message of hope come from a curse? But it is. The definition of curse is a solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm or punishment or someone on someone or something. Harm or punishment or destruction. It has the idea of destruction. On the very day that the enemy introduces the human race to God's on the very day that the enemy introduces the human race, Adam and Eve, to evil, 
God confronts this enemy immediately, and he says, you are cursed. God looks at them and he says, I'm going to destroy you and your works. That's a message of hope. Who else could do that? Only God can destroy the evil that, that, um, that Satan brought into the garden. Only God could do that. And he says, I'm going to destroy you. Thank God for the curse on evil. If God isn't the one to destroy evil, who else could? You know, we keep trying to accomplish this, don't we? All we need to do is take a look around us. There's wars. People are constantly trying to fight this thing out, root out the evil one. We're going to go over and drop bombs on this certain person because we think he's evil. Only God can destroy evil. And he said, he said he will. He said, cursed are you. Now, Adam and Eve being there, Adam heard God and saw God pronounce this curse on Satan. Now he says, I imagine as Adam and Eve are standing there, Adam is wondering, what's in it for me? If he cursed Satan, if he cursed the serpent, What's he going to do to me? Did God say there was a curse here? Did God say cursed are you? What did God say to Adam? Did he say cursed are you? We know we're living with the consequences of this today. But God, God diverted his wrath away from Adam. And he says this, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. What did the ground do? The ground wasn't involved here at all. But he diverts his wrath away from Adam, and he says, cursed is the ground because of what you did. This also is a message of hope. It's, it, it's, God, it's God's grace and his mercy towards us. We see, these, we see this coming through in Genesis chapter 3. This is telling us one of the most important things about God. He finds a way to divert the curse away from man. And I wonder, I wonder if Adam didn't go to bed that night and wonder what God has in mind for me. I certainly deserved the same curse that was cursed that was given towards Satan. <clears throat> In the New Testament, it tells us that Christ came to bear this curse on our behalf. God speaks a wonderful promise there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. First he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and her seed. Her seed, in other words, what he was saying is her seed will always be trying to get rid of evil. And they will always be trying to recreate this paradise that they came from. But they can never, they can never completely uh, accomplish that. And so the struggle continues. 
He also says in the same verse, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bite his heel. Notice he says the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. There is coming someone who is going to crush this serpent's head. He's going to destroy his works. And he is going to bite his heel. Let's take a look at how this happened. We, can, we, ha we now have the privilege of looking back over scripture. And we can see exactly how this all unfolded through Christ. This bite of the heel is all the powers of the evil one was unleashed upon Jesus on the cross in that barbaric act of mankind coming against Jesus and the, the brutal torture that he went through that was all a part of this serpent biting his heel. The death of the Lord Jesus then, this deals a death blow to the powers of the evil one. This is the crushing of the serpent's head. Now through Christ, we stand forgiven and redeemed. The evil one no longer has power over us, but we, are, but we through Christ have been brought back into fellowship with him, with God. While our paradise still waits for us someday, I look forward to that day. We can still, through the power of Christ, live victorious Christian lives here in this sin-cursed earth through what Christ has done for us on the cross. You can come to Christ for this, and he can make you right with God, but only him. One final thought. In verse 24, Christ comes out of, if you will, when Christ came to this earth, he came, as it were, he came out of the place of blessing. He was with God in the presence of God, I believe. He steps outside of this place of blessing and comes, as it were, to the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and engages the enemy, Satan himself. And he's victorious. He comes out victorious. And he does so on our behalf. We don't deserve this, but he does so on our behalf. Interestingly, I believe also the other thing he did is he made a way back to God. So he comes outside of the place of blessing and he now also engages this flaming and flashing sword that's going. What he does on the cross is he advances for us towards those swords guarding the way to the tree of life. And as he advances there, those swords hit him and it breaks him and, and cuts him. This is his death. But in the same motion, those swords are now broken. And we have access to God through him. We now have access back to the place of blessing through Christ. 
Through his death, there was a new and a living way is open to the blessings of God. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. He made the way back open for us. Into, back into that blessing of God. In the temple in Jerusalem, in the time of Christ, there was that great curtain that guarded the way into the Holy of Holies. And on top of that curtain, all the way on top, there was this cherubim was embroidered in the top of the curtain. And when Jesus died, that curtain was split down the middle and opened up into into the Holy of Holies. He became the way back into the blessing of God and back into that life everlasting. Do you accept the diagnosis? See, no matter how hard we try to build our own paradise, And to enter into our own place of blessing, we can never, we can never quite achieve it. The Apostle Paul writes about this incredible battle in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body, from the body of this death? Then he goes on and he bursts out here. He says, I thank God through Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law, but with the flesh the law of sin. He says, I thank God through Jesus our Lord he has made a way back into the blessing of God. Will you accept the prescription? Will you bring to him the struggle that you're faced with right now? He will bring you into relationship with him. And it is his promise that those who come to him, those, he will take you through safely in the last day. Through the judgment of God, the sword has been broken on him. And he will take you safely through the end. And he alone, he alone is worthy of all our praise and adoration because of what he did for us. Let's kneel together and pray.